And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the political podcast from The Scotsman. It's Easter Monday um, at time of recording, so I hope everyone had everyone listening had a great Easter weekend. With us, as always, is the Deputy Political Editor of The Scotsman, Gina Davidson, and also we have the first appearance, hopefully of many, of The Scotsman's Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. Good morning, both of you. How are you doing? Morning, Coroner. Very well, thank you. How are you? battling on. Uh, just a month now to go until the election, so we'll dive straight in and talk about the bombshell, I hate that word, but we'll use the word bombshell, poll in the Sunday Times on Sunday, which showed Alba on 6% and All for Unity on 4%, as well as an overall majority for the SNP and the Conservatives and Labour hovering around their usual 23-21% marks. Gina, do you buy it? Do you think that's going to be what we see in in May? Well, in terms of Alba, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. I think that is quite possibly their ceiling, 6% at the moment. In terms of All for Unity, I was actually quite gobsmacked at at that result, 4%, which you could only assume is based on the profile of George Galloway, you know, who's who's leading them here, um, because people know him. Some people still like him, you know. And he's very much the uh, the yin to Salmon's yang, I suppose, when it comes to constitutional politics. So, so there could well be that level of support, but I wouldn't be surprised if come election day that falls back a bit, um, because obviously that's going to eat into the other unionist party vote share on the list, and people might not want to risk it ultimately at the end of the day. But the the Alba vote didn't surprise me so much. I mean, I think. It would be a foolish person to write off Alex Salmond uh, in political terms, despite everything that's happened over the last three years. There's certainly obviously a lot of very discontented SNP, former members, possibly former voters who seem to have flocked to his standard, as he likes to keep saying. I wasn't so surprised at that. I was actually surprised, more surprised at the earlier poll, but that was taken much um, earlier, I guess, in terms of their right after their launch. Uh, which only put them on three percent, but I can't, I really can't see it going higher than six percent. And even even with that, it just takes mild fluctuation for them to return a handful and to return none. So it's uh, all to play for, as they say. They would basically have to beat. Um, I think we talked to Chris Hopkins about this um, on the last episode, but you know they'd have to, as a minimum, beat the Greens or the Lib Dems 
in the regions in order to be even in, in with a chance to get um, a list seat. 6% is about the the mark that they have to hit, certainly in the northeast where Alex Salmond is hoping to get in. If he hits 6%, then he should be pretty happy. Where is that going to come from, though? I mean, I, you know, I spoke to uh, Kenny, uh, you know, the first great defector over the weekend, who said, you know, our platform on women's rights and education is going to what is going to be what brings people over. But if you're if you're already a unionist and you think, well, I care about education, and then you've got this new party with a let's say a, a controversial leader um, who has no real chance of government. All they're going to be doing is making suggestions for what their education policy is. So why would you give them your vote? I don't. Other if it's then if it's not for independence purposes, I don't see how they go from. I don't see how they put on enough percent to make it like that. What's the appeal? Yeah, I think as well the you can look at all for unity and really question that figure of four percent. It's probably within that margin of error of maybe the one percent you could expect. A lot of people looked at that panel based poll and kind of viewed it for what it was which you know if if you prompt a party you're more likely to get people picking it and it's, it's just it's bordering on unbelievable to suggest that George Galloway will be an MSP in the next parliament not because of who he is but because of his party I was talking to one one person who looks at these things often they basically said you know it's hard to believe that two parties that are almost entirely based on social media would be polling as high as 6 and 4%. And I think that's probably true. Well, yeah, that's still some achievement. True, but imagine, imagine, imagine what the parliament would look like if you had George Galloway and Alex Salmond returned. Um, I think it would be Nicola Sturgeon's absolute worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Can we take a moment to uh, consider reform, is it reform UK? Uh, of all the, we're talking about parties doing quite well. Michelle Ballantyne, you know, quits Tories. They they come out first for Nigel Farage's new vehicle. He's gone, and um, I don't appear to have seen them in any of the polling. And that's, I'll bow to your superior knowledge on that. I don't know if they're doing particularly well. I haven't seen them listed <laughs> on any poll. But they, I, again, I think it's that issue of they're not being uh, prompted in the way that Albert and you know All for Unity are. So. If one of the pollsters want to, you know, put reform on on the list of parties to ask about, then maybe we'd get a different answer. I know you have to remember as well that there are so many parties standing in this election. It reminds me of the the um, no God was it the second or the third parliament, which is called the Rainbow Parliament, because there were so many different um, smaller parties returned. And, and I mean, you've got Reform, there's Reclaim, there's Renew. There's there's another R, <laughs> you know. Plus plus UKIP still there. UKIP standing in in the Lothians, um, as well as they abolish the Scottish Parliament Party, which feels a bit counterintuitive, really. But there are there are many many parties standing this time round, and I, I don't know whether that's a reflection of democracy in action or complete dissatisfaction with uh, how the last five years have gone. Absolutely, and on the topic of dissatisfaction the handling of the UK government of the question of the union has been dissatisfactory probably for everyone involved probably for nationalists for not providing a referendum and probably for unionists for not being quite strong enough Alex intrigued to ask you we got an interview with Douglas Ross um, which was recorded last week later on take us through the current situation in Westminster when it comes to the union what what are they currently 
viewing the problem as? <laughs> well, this is going to be a very, very long podcast. <laughs> well, the number one issue, well, I think one of the huge issues for so many people has been the leadership of Boris Johnson. And that, that, makes a, that creates a huge problem for the Scottish Conservatives. This is a man who, after the success of the vaccine programme, told the 1922 committee uh, Scotland would have no vaccines uh, if it were not for the UK government. Which, sure, if you, you can frame that and go, what a great success of the union, or you can make it a brag to your own, M- own Tory MPs going, ha ha, Scotland needs us. I mean, it, it's, it's all about optics. I mean, the view is to focus on education. Uh, as we've seen, Boris Johnson now has brought that up, I think, at the last uh, few Prime Minister's questions. His tone has changed slightly uh, in how he speaks, but it's still all aggression uh, all the time, which is, which is difficult. Um, and, you know, the, the union unit, which was a rousing success, um, ousting, its, ousting, you know, poor Lou Graham and then getting someone else in for about 10 days and then him quitting. And then we were being told the union unit, the unit still exists. And then they set up this new union subcommittee, which doesn't involve anyone from that. Um, and doesn't, I mean, Douglas Ross, the you know, Scottish Conservative leader, is not part, was not, wasn't involved with the union unit or the union subcommittee, but that's completely fine. And we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And the union unit, we're told, continues to, exi- continues to exist while this separate thing also exists together. And then you've got the Scotland office as well, who says that, you know, they're making sure that everything's focused on delivering uh, UK wide. If I had a coherent message that I was being told I could, I could give, you, give you, I would. But I mean, but there just isn't, and this is this isn't this isn't an isolated incident. You know, there, there are issue, issues such as, um, you know, Pretty Patel, which obviously Douglas Ross diverged from um, with the Prime Minister. But things like that, now you can't get them to comment on. They won't dis- they won't discuss each other's things because they're not they, they they think differently. So the way Boris Johnson wants to handle the union and present. Conservative Scotland is different to perhaps how uh, Mr. Ross wants to do it. So I would say the current attitude is a mess. <laughs> that would be my coherent analysis. It's 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 a fascinating <laughs> eaten mess, of course. It's, it's a fascinating. <laughs> it's a fascinating situation to be in at the minute because I think Douglas actually speaks a little bit about his relationship with Boris Johnson and also what he might have done around the Pretty Patel incident, had he still been in government. It's probably the most open I've heard him on that in the election campaign. From my point of view, he's clearly delineating UK conservatism and Scottish conservatism based on you know domestic policy. Um, you see things being proposed by the Scottish conservatives up here, such as you know free school meals that caused massive controversy down south. Do you think Douglas Ross is just a completely different colour or shade of blue to Boris. And that's why there's tension? Or do you think it is just need looking at the electoral maths and seeing that Scotland's maybe a little bit more progressive than than down south? It, there was a concerted effort, even you know, a bit further before the election, from Mr Ross, after the free school meals thing, to say to you know, Scottish Tories, we're not going to vote on England-only matters because you know, they would follow a three-line whip vote with the government uh, on an issue that, I mean, is extremely hard to justify. You know, we should not be giving kids (laughs) more food or more money. Um, And and that created a huge problem, especially when it's not the policy in Scotland. So even 
when they're trying to say, look, here is a radical offer in Scotland, here's what the Scottish Conservative government could do for you and your children. At the same time, they're going completely the other way in Westminster, which is an absolute gift of optics to the SNP. There is a divergence. I do think that the Scottish Conservatives are more progressive than their uh, counterparts in Westminster. But, you know, a lot of these things aren't, they're just, they're saying them a little bit more loudly now. um, Because if you say them before this election going on, all you're doing is going against Prime Minister and creating a division for the Conservative Party. Whereas now, it's good to have a division because people in Scotland perhaps don't want to vote for the larger Conservative Party, but they might for uh, Mr Ross and the Scottish Conservatives. It's interesting, isn't it? This has been a, a kind of theme in Scotland because obviously Ruth Davidson diverged hugely from Boris Johnson, particularly around Brexit. And now you have Douglas Ross, who's definitely trying to to make his mark as his his own man. And you do wonder if it'll hold. You know, if I mean, you know, the one thing that the Conservatives have are, are renowned for is being unified enough because it's all about retaining control and retaining power and, and being elected and staying there forever if they can. You know, this tension that obviously exists now between Scotland, the Scottish Conservative Party, and, and the rest. Is really quite fascinating, and I do wonder if it'll if they'll continue to remain one party, or because obviously you know you have people like Murdo Fraser up here who have suggested in the past that maybe it's time for the Scottish Conservatives to do their own thing and, and and be a separate party. I don't think they're in the same financial difficulties as Labour are around that issue, because obviously Scottish Labour needs to be part of the UK Labour Party just to have any cash at all. But um, but it'd be it'd be fascinating to see if uh, Ross takes them down a a path which ultimately leads to that divergence. What's your take, Alex, on Douglas and, you know, his relationship with the wider Conservative Party and government in Westminster? Well, I would say, perhaps overly bluntly, that a lot of Conservatives MPs just do not care about the Scottish Conservatives or Scotland. You speak to them and it's like, it's almost... It's, and it's almost the opposite of some of the approach on Brexit. And it's, you know, well, sure, maybe we just let Scotland go and, you know, they'll be, it'll be so poor, they'll then come back and they'll see what it's really like. There's not rousing endorsement when Mr. Ross stands up to speak. They, they really, <laughs> they really they re- I would say that the, the attitude I generally get is, is mild indifference. Uh, it's like, good luck with the job. I'm glad it's not me. I have nothing to offer, which is remarkable really when it's quite a big job at a crucial time for both their leader and the conservatives i mean boris johnson gave himself the role minister of the union he talked it up in the uh, in the leadership campaign against jeremy hunt um gave himself the title and then since then i think has given no op-eds or uh, sit-down interviews that i'm aware of with scottish newspapers uh and, and actively damaged uh mr ross's chances and 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 but MPs MPs aren't going to speak out about that, so I it, it's mild indifference, and it's not not particularly helpful really. I do wonder if um, Boris Johnson just doesn't understand Scotland. You know, it, it's and not just him, but other others. Despite the fact that he's got Michael Gove there, and he's obviously got Douglas Ross up here, you know, it reminds me of um, Margaret Thatcher. You know, being completely unable to understand why there wasn't any more support for her party uh, when she was prime minister in Scotland, when you know she'd pushed through 
council housing uh, reform so people could buy their council houses, which thousands and thousands of Scottish people took advantage of. You know, also changed um, the, the, the education system so that you could choose where you sent your child to school. You didn't have to stay within your... I mean, all of these things were were seized upon by a lot of Scots and, you know, they um, they liked those policies, but they couldn't vote for her or, or her party. And she never, ever understood that. And I wonder if Boris Johnson is now in that place as well. You know, he, he's beginning to do these things and there will be possibly economic benefits to the spending that they, they make in Scotland. But actually, at the end of the day, I'd be very surprised if they get any electoral credit for it. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that the Prime Minister is renowned for being someone who's always a grasp of the detail and, you know, focuses on particular issues. Uh, like when he was under mayor, he would attract people around him like a force of nature who would then be a bit more competent and then drive things through. That doesn't seem to be the case uh, in Scotland. You you can't, you know, the way that he speaks, it can, you can compel people to go, oh, that great other, you know, I, the, the horrible European machine, as he did so <laughs> for so long uh, in his Telegraph columns and then as, as an MP. But you can't really designate another with Scotland, which is the problem because he's quite aggressive when he talks about the Scottish National Party. But that's not going to convince people to go, oh, that's a better argument. That's a better alternative to what you're offering me. And I, and I, you know, and it strikes me that when he did visit Scotland, um, not only did he visit um, a vaccine centre, I think it was a day after they'd had some sort of uh, some sort of outbreak, which then we we weren't, we had to you know find out ourselves. I I don't think a speech was made there that anyone would go, oh, I mean, I, you know, well, then the reason of what have as far as speeches can go that you'd think that was inspiring. That showed he really got Scotland. And when I think. When was the last time I heard, or and I put this to you as well, a senior UK government minister speak about Scotland in terms that totally grasped it or showed an enthusiasm for it? Uh, the only one that I could think of was Matt Hancock um, at a Downing Street press conference when he was asked about you know how it was going, and he was um, very eloquent and uh, and quite passionate actually about how you know how how great it was to work with his Scottish colleagues um, in the Scottish government and how the amazing vaccine scheme was a, a universal effort and how they were all working together. And it meant so much to have like family members there who were working together in this great union. And it, and it came, it seemed really genuine um, and was a lot more coherent than how I presented it. But I, I can't recall that coming from the prime minister or, or, or any other government minister. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to bow to your uh, superior knowledge, but nothing nothing springs to mind. Whereas, you know, in Scotland, you have the First Minister standing up every day, answering questions uh, and being direct. Has Rishi Sunak said anything about Scotland? Where Where is the Chancellor? Who, you know, initially on the, with the furlough scheme, was hesitant about extending it. Uh, and then Douglas Ross said, but it, will it be extended in Scotland? And then, you know, they kind of flubbed it. And then they had to, only a few days later, after a backlash, they say, oh, yes, it will apply UK-wide. It's the, the messaging uh, and the focus on Scotland just doesn't appear to be there. Is it a split on strategy or is it a, as you say, just a complete lack of, you know, laser sharp focus? Well, I'm not sure because, you know, the whole point of the union unit was to have a UK government wide approach to policy making. And while that may be happening, the way it's presented is a problem. And even, and again, even good things like the UK government investing directly in Scotland is then framed as a power grab. So it, it is difficult to present the argument after so many years of, um, I mean, laziness, really, 
and disinterest that there is a, a huge interest in making Scotland better. Um, but I think I think it's one it's more of optics than intent, perhaps. We'll hear from Douglas Ross shortly. But do do you think that Douglas Ross, as a politician, has the skills to defend and pre- present a positive case for the union from within Scotland better than anyone else? I wouldn't say better than anyone else, but I would say that he is more than capable. I mean, and what's more, God is willing to put the work in. I mean, he does Facebook lives regularly. Um, facing all manner of questions like are your magic mushrooms or you know trying to get him to say rude words uh, like like calling up um, Mo in the Simpsons and then and then he and then he says them and this and this happens all the time to- and this happens all the time because people online and this will shock our listeners are not particularly pleasant but he goes up to the stump and you know given a bat made of I don't know lurpak by the prime minister still goes out swinging. Uh, I think he is, he can be very, very good on detail. And he is a compassionate Scot and Brit. Uh, so I would say that he can make the argument. It's just, it's it's not really about him, unfortunately. It's, it's about the advice and the message coming from uh, south of the border. That's more of a problem. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for joining us this week. I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. You're coming up to Scotland at some point um, to do some constituency walkabouts and we'll probably talk to you after those as well. But for now, we'll hear from Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives. So hello and welcome Douglas Ross to the Steamy. For those who don't know, I don't know many listeners of the Steamy who wouldn't know, Douglas is obviously the uh, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives and it's fantastic to have you on um, in such a busy time, so thank you for your time. What we'll start with, Douglas, is a very simple question there's an election in less than five weeks now. Why should Scot- Scottish voters put their cross on the ballot box next to the Scottish Conservatives? Well, we've got a very simple theme in this campaign to end the division that Scotland's been through for the last number of years. Say no to another referendum so we can rebuild Scotland. We've all been through the worst 12 months that anyone could have imagined. So many sacrifices, and I think the focus has to be on our recovery, rebuilding Scotland, supporting our education system, backing the NHS, getting fairness back into the justice system for the victims of crime rather than criminals, protecting people's jobs, stimulating the economy, and we can focus on that if we don't have this threat of another independence referendum hanging over us. So what's your, you know, one of the things that has been a recurring theme in your campaign, pretty much since uh, Richard Leonard stood down as a Scottish Labour leader, has been, you know, offering up a unionist alliance. Why, why are you doing this knowing, presumably full well, that Scottish Labour are going to turn this down um, straight away? Well, in fairness, I wouldn't say it's since Richard Leonard stood down as Scottish Labour leader because I, I made the same offer to Richard Leonard. Uh, I do think there is a serious threat right now to Scottish politics that if the SNP get a majority in this election, they're going to take our politics right back to another independence referendum. Scottish Conservatives stopped that majority back in 2016. We can do it again now. But I do think with the the Better Together team defeated independence in 2014, and we could do it again now, but Anna Sawar and Willie Rennie both turned down my offer to work together. So I'm asking people to unite behind the strongest pro-UK party that's got a track record of defeating the SNP, stopping them getting a majority in 2016 and stopping them holding that divisive independence referendum again. 
But Douglas, your uh, UK Westminster leader, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has said categorically that there will be no second independence referendum, that he will not grant a Section 30 order. So why do you feel the need to focus so much on that when the threat is really non-existent at the minute? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, because we now see the nationalists, be they Alex Salmon's nationalists or Nicola Sturgeon's nationalists, want to game the system to have a pro-independence uh, majority in the Scottish Parliament. So that side of the argument is already trying to use our electoral system to um, have a, a supermajority, as they call it. And the other point I would make is it, it now doesn't matter what the Prime Minister said. Nicola Sturgeon has uh, instructed her party to, to bring forward an 11-point plan to hold another independence referendum. Uh, and part of that looks at holding a referendum without the um, su support of the UK government, without a Section 30 order being granted. So the SNP and nationalists are looking at holding another independence referendum, whether it's with the agreement or not of the UK government. On that. One of the, again, a recurring thing that I've read in, in your statements and obviously heard in your speeches so far is that if the SNP win a majority, there will be a, a, Scot a Scottish independence referendum. That, that's been almost verbatim in every speech. So presumably, if they do win, that's a mandate for them, regardless of what Boris Johnson thinks. Well, what I'm saying is people have to understand if you vote SNP, you are voting for another independence referendum. If you want to stop that vote Scottish Conservative, because that's what people did five years ago. That stopped the SNP getting a majority and that stopped them holding another independence referendum. But as we record this um, on uh, Wednesday, uh, Thursday, sorry, uh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon said on radio this morning that she wants to hold that referendum while we're still in the recovery phase from COVID-19. She confirmed to me in the debate on uh, Tuesday night that it will be held in the next couple of years. So that shows the threat that we are facing here in Scotland right now. If the nationalists get their majority, they will take us through that divisive independence referendum all over again. And I believe people are looking at this right now thinking we need a recovery, we need to focus on rebuilding Scotland, we don't need another referendum in the next two years, and particularly not a campaign happening when we should be focusing on our recovery. Just to drill down into that a little bit further, so if the SNP win a majority... Would you oppose a referendum taking place? Because it, it does sound to voters, I think, as if, you know, the Scottish Conservatives are not supporting independence, obviously, but are at least supportive of a majority for the SNP being a mandate for an independence referendum. So if they do get that, presumably you'll be happy to make representations to the UK government for that to go ahead and to fight it on a fair battleground. No, I will oppose another independence referendum and part of the unionist pledge I was asking the other uh, pro-UK party leaders to sign was to say, regardless of what happens in May, whatever the outcome, we should agree not to hold another independence referendum. When we're focused on our recovery, when we're trying to rebuild Scotland, we don't need another independence referendum. And I think people understand that. As a Conservative and unionist, I don't want to take the country through another damaging referendum. So I would always say no to another referendum, but the threat is there. And Nicola Sturgeon has made it clear, if the SNP win a majority, they're going to push ahead with another referendum when Scotland's still in the recovery phase, when we're still dealing with this pandemic, rather than focusing on education, focusing on the health service, focusing on our economy or on protecting people's jobs. So Douglas, 
I mean, it sounds very much like you're on the same page as George Galloway, who says, you know, um, the parties that are for the union uh, should stand down in places where they know they're not going to uh, to win or um, or gain the you know the, the most votes. I mean, where where would you stand down your candidates if you were to take that route? Uh, we'll know where now, because as, as you know, Gina, um, now that we're recording this on Thursday at four o'clock yesterday afternoon, nominations closed and everyone is now uh, fully uh, endorsed as a candidate in the 73 constituencies and for uh, the 56 regional list seats that are up for grabs. But you could have, but, but you could unilaterally have done that, couldn't you, before the nominations went in? You could have just decided, right, you know, I know that, you know, we're not going to win, say, I don't, you know, um, Edinburgh Southern or... East Lothian, say, you know, so we will stand down our candidates and made your point that way, but you haven't done that. But this is exactly why I made the offer to Scottish Labour and Scottish Liberal Democrats last Saturday. Uh, and I said we could meet, as, as we all can do, within minutes virtually to discuss any and all options. I wasn't ruling anything in, I wasn't ruling anything out. And that was for the leaders of those three pro-UK parties who worked together in 2014 and in the run-up to 2014 to say, what could we do working together against the threat now of Nicola Sturgeon's SNP and Alex Salmon's nationalists? And, and that was turned down. And that's up to Scottish Labour and the Scottish Liberal Democrats to say why they turned that down within three hours. But I was willing to have that conversation and I'm still willing to have a conversation with all the parties when we look at the results post-May. Is there a way we can stop uh, the nationalists again? Because I think after 14 years in office, they've failed Scotland. And they failed Scotland and they failed all the services uh, that they have power over because they've been focused on another referendum, not on education, health, the economy, etc. One of um, Anasawa's points that I think he repeated quite a few times in the leaders debate on Tuesday so last week for listeners was that Scotland deserves better not just in in government but also in opposition obviously your party's been the main opposition do you agree with him I believe Scotland deserves better I just think um Scottish Labour don't understand the threat. We can focus on cancer waiting times. We can focus on investing in the NHS, on building up our standards in education again. Now they've plummeted down international rankings. We can focus on all that when our parliament is focused on it. We can't when we have a threat from the nationalists. So I think, you know, Scottish Labour, Scottish Liberal Democrats and the Scottish Conservatives all want the same thing. But Scottish Labour and the Lib Dems haven't understood the barrier in the way to our recovery and focusing on all these areas is the threat of another independence referendum. So we get that off the table, we stop the SNP getting a majority, then we can focus on the NHS, on cancer waiting times, on recovering from the pandemic, on education. But we can't, well, the SNP are saying they're going to take us through another referendum. It's going to prove very difficult to stop them getting a majority. Surely, Douglas. I mean, they, you know, even if it's on a knife edge, you know, they're still likely to be the largest party. There will be Greens there. There quite could even be Alba party uh, representatives. You, Labour, Lib Dems, you're kind of on a hiding to nothing trying to prevent the second independence referendum, aren't you? Well, I don't think so. And the future of our country is far too important to give up on because we think the challenge uh, is too big. Uh, I'm going to fight for the next five weeks for every single vote, for every single person to endorse the Scottish Conservatives' positive message and positive plans for Scotland that we can take forward if we stop another independence referendum. Uh, and I'd simply say we did it before. We did it five years ago when everyone said the Scottish Conservatives you know, would continue to be in third place 
We actually more than doubled the number of MSPs. We stopped the SNP getting a majority because they went into the 2016 election with a majority and Nicola Sturgeon came out of that election without a majority. And I think we have shown over the last five years we are the party that's willing to challenge the SNP, that's willing to say, no, focus on all these issues that are important to people rather than another referendum. On a broader point on the constitution issue, Douglas, if I may, I'm intrigued to know your thoughts on why unionism has struggled to, you know, make a breakthrough and maybe make a decisive breakthrough is the best way of phrasing that because it's it's obviously the SNP have been in power for 14 years. We, we, we know that. By that point, normally, any government is on the way out and history just usually, you know, suggests that. So I'm wondering why unionism hasn't broken through that barrier? Well, if I can come back to, to the unionism point in a second, but just in terms of the SNP's popularity after 14 years, I, I'd go back to Gina's point. You know, the people who support the union um, support a number of different political parties. The vast majority of people who support Scotland, uh, separating from the rest of the UK, back the SNP as the best party to deliver that. And therefore, they go into every election with a huge block of people who might not agree with them um, on education, who might think they've let our economy down by being distracted on other things, who think they could do far more for the NHS, but believe they will deliver another independence referendum, so they're going to back them regardless. And therefore, the other parties on the pro-UK side um, are shared out um, uh, between a number of different parties. But in terms of your point about unionism and, and why it's not made that breakthrough, one, I would say, you know, there is still strong support in Scotland for remaining part of the United Kingdom. But I do think, um, you know, the vast majority of us on the pro-UK side you know, down tools after 2014, because we were told there would be a once in a generation, one opportunity to vote to stay in the UK or leave the UK and become an independent country. And both sides agreed to accept the result. So when in uh, September 2014, 55% of people in Scotland voted to remain in the UK, we thought, there, there we go, we've done that, we've convinced people in a campaign, now we can move on to other issues. But of course, the nationalists never accepted that result. You know, they're perfectly entitled to still believe in independence, but they did say they would accept the result of the referendum. And they have campaigned every single day ever since to have another independence referendum to get the result they want. And I think that's been part of it. But as the threat becomes clearer again, that the nationalists are going to try and bring forward another independence referendum during our recovery from this pandemic, then I think people will once again respond to that threat and support the strongest party across Scotland to stop that referendum happening again, and that's the Scottish Conservatives. Do you think there was a a certain naivety amongst the parties after 2014 then, Douglas? Because, I mean, the SNP's raison d'etre is just to have an independent Scotland. There was never never a chance that they were going to, to let that drop, really, was there? And they would look for the next reason you know, to have to have a rerun of the, of the referendum. And I, I mean, was it naivety? And also, can I ask, how culpable do you think um, David Cameron is in all of this, in the rise of um, this desire that appears to be there for, for, for independence? So I wouldn't call it naivety. I just think when both sides agreed to respect the result 
I can imagine what independent supporters would say if I'd spent from the day after the referendum in 2014, if it had gone the other way, campaigning for Scotland to rejoin the UK, they would have been up in arms. They would have said, well, you said you would respect the result and you're not doing that. So I think they have to accept that as a criticism. If you have a once in a generation vote, and I know they don't like that being repeated, but it was in the white paper that the SNP published, their independence white paper. There's multiple photographs and comments from Alex Sam and Dan Nicholas Sturgeon saying one opportunity. It was clear that was the opportunity for Scotland to vote to leave the UK or, or to stay in it, and we voted to stay in it. In terms of um, you know blaming people or others, I, I think everyone will, will look at decisions that were taken in the run-up to 2014. I, I do think um, you know, an awful lot um, was offered to, to the SNP in terms of the question, the franchise, the date. Um, and really, I think, you know, a proper negotiation would look at all of these things. Um, so, you know, you could question if David Cameron was, was right or wrong on a, a number of those points. But ultimately, we had the referendum. Um, which was, Nicola Sturgeon's words, a gold standard referendum, uh, and 55% of the population, more than 2 million people in Scotland, voted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and many of those are now questioning, you know, why, uh, you know, are we having this debate all over again when a very decisive decision was taken just seven years ago? I suppose what, what I was alluding to with uh, David Cameron was more of what happened after the referendum rather than uh, in the run-up to it. No, that's fine but I, you know obviously he came out and more or less you know gave the whole uh, statement about english on english laws and you know and, and promised there or there had been a promise that scotland would be at kind of the heart of decision making and that seemed to go by the wayside and then of course we had the brexit referendum and scotland voted to remain and i mean do you understand why there's a kind of feeling amongst some scots you know that scotland tends to be ignored by westminster no, I, I wouldn't say say that. I do understand uh, that Brexit has changed people's opinions. I've I've made that clear uh, in a speech I, I gave to Policy Exchange last year. Um, I understand uh, that English votes for English laws, um, you know, change people's minds, or, or people were, were questioning that. But I also understand that the the SNP and the Scottish government will always make out that that Westminster isn't listening to the, to the people of Scotland, but Holyrood is. But I represent uh, an area of Scotland out with the central belt, and I've said this before, you know, we often feel as distant from Holyrood and the Scottish government as people across Scotland apparently felt before devolution of the UK government. Uh, so just to simply say decisions are taken now in Edinburgh and that therefore means everyone in Scotland feels included. Actually, those of us in the north of Scotland and the south of Scotland sometimes feel quite ignored by decisions taken, uh, particularly for the central belt of Scotland. On um, the current UK government, you know, David Cameron, as Gina says, gets some stick, but Boris Johnson gets a lot more for the current state of support for the union. He's, his approval ratings are pretty terrible up here and he's, he's not well liked. You've obviously worked pretty closely with him, presumably over the last few months and and years as an MP. What what is your take on his approach to the union? What are his positives? What are his negatives? So, I mean, he's passionate about the union. He is proud of Scotland's role within the UK and and what the UK 
provides to Scotland. And if we look at positives, you've got to look at the UK government's furlough scheme. That's protected almost a million jobs here in Scotland through furlough and the self-employed income support in the same way it's protected jobs in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. You've got to look at the vaccination scheme. You know, we're speaking on the day that, you know, I was commenting on almost two and a half million people in Scotland receiving their first dose of the vaccine and compare how we would have fared if we were an independent country in the European Union. The, the United Kingdom's rollout and Scotland's rollout has been miles ahead of the EU and many parts of the world because of the outstanding NHS, the British Armed Forces and the volunteers, but also because the UK government took an early decision to procure a number of different vaccines and that's why we can see our way out of this. But the Prime Minister also accepts that, you know, he, he doesn't ignore these poll ratings. He he sees uh, poll ratings uh, as anyone else does, uh, and he understands uh, people like him and, and people don't. And that's the nature uh, of politics. Um, I do work closely with him, you know, we're in regular contact. Um, I also resigned from his government. That, you know, I, I was proud as, as a... <laughs> A young lad from Forest, um, you know, making my way in, in politics and you know, the son of a farm worker and a school dinner lady to get his own red box um, and a ministerial office was something I was immensely proud of. And, and I always will be. And he gave me that opportunity uh, to serve in government. Uh, but I also decided I, I couldn't continue for your listeners will probably know because of the Dominic Cummings uh, incident. So, you know, I both agree with the Prime Minister, I disagree with the Prime Minister, um, and I've shown, uh, I think, by my actions that I do what I think is right, uh, rather than simply what the Prime Minister would want me to do. Do you like him, though, Douglas? I mean, do you? Obviously, you know, everybody works beside people in politics who are colleagues and so on. It don't, doesn't necessarily mean that they all like each other at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, and he... and. This last week for him has been particularly embarrassing with all these revelations that have come out uh, from Jennifer Arcuri. You know, and there are all sorts of questions around him misleading Parliament over COVID contracts, so on and so forth. I mean, every time he opens his mouth, you must be concerned as to what's going to come out and how it's going to impact on your votes come May. Well, I, I was smiling there because I thought, imagine the question going the other way, someone in London asking him, does he like Douglas Ross? Because, I, you know, I've not been without my, my challenges for the Prime Minister and things I've said and uh, things I've, I've called for uh, that I think ultimately I've been proven correct on. But it's not always been the, the easiest listening, I'm sure, in, in number 10 or of the Prime Minister. Um, but he is someone, you know, I, I work closely with. He's the leader of the Conservatives. I'm the leader of the Scottish Conservatives. Um, as I've said before, though, there are things I think he's got right. There are things I think he's got wrong. But I'm big enough and willing to say to him that actually I don't agree with you on that. And I think what people are looking for is, is both of Scotland's governments working together. And I think we can do that if the Scottish and the UK governments work together to deliver for people rather than always fighting with each other. And I think most people would accept the SNP will never recognise anything the Prime Minister does or anything the UK government does as a positive. They will always look at it as a negative. Well, actually, let's try and turn the dial, work together where there's common ground and have differences of opinion where they are legitimate. OK, but I mean, you, you were very quick to call for, for Nicola Sturgeon. To, to resign if she was found to have misled uh, par uh, the Scottish Parliament. And, you know, there are accusations of hypocrisy around your, your party stance when it comes to your own prime minister. I mean, how do you how do you square that circle? Well, he's not been found by a committee of fellow MPs to have misled Parliament, whereas Nicola Sturgeon has. So I, I said, you know, 
she should not continue uh, as First Minister if she's misled Parliament. And of course, Scottish Conservatives, Scottish Labour, Scottish Liberal Democrats and a former Scottish Green now sitting as an independent MSP found she had misled the Committee of Parliament and therefore Parliament itself. And of course, the Hamilton report, uh, which looked into the breaches of the ministerial code, said it was up to MSPs to determine if she had misled them. And when MSPs did determine that, I think it's right that um, Scottish Conservatives as the main opposition to the SNP Scottish Government brought forward that vote of no confidence. What about Priti Patel? She was found to have breached the ministerial code. Allegations of bullying led to the departure of you know, a very high-profile civil servant. You know, There's lots of criticism that you and your party have put to Nicola Sturgeon could equally apply to um, Priti Patel. And arguably, there's criticism you've put to Alec, to Alex Salmond that could apply to Priti Patel. Why, why is she still in place? Are you happy with the way that Boris Johnson dealt with, with that issue? Well, what I've said on this a number of times is there are opportunities for the opposition parties at Westminster to have brought forward votes of no confidence in the same way the Scottish Conservatives brought a vote of no confidence in Holyrood. So we haven't heard that from the Labour Party or the SNP as the third biggest party at Westminster. But I don't, however underplay the, the criticisms in that report. The Prime Minister asked for a report into the Home Secretary's behaviour and it did highlight um, you know, a number of failings. Um, so that has to be recognised. But it is, it's the, the job of opposition is to bring forward votes such as this. And it would be a question for Keir Stammer or Ian Blackford as to why they've not brought forward those votes in the Home Secretary. You made a very moral stance when you resigned from government, Douglas, over the Dominic Cummings affair. If you had still been in government when the Pretty Patel report came out, would you have resigned? I mean, when you've already gone, it's easy to say yes, because you've got nothing to, to give up, I suppose. Um, I, I think if you look at the two incidents, um, you know, I think, I hope people can understand my character uh, from the Dominic Cummings affair uh, and take from that that I can't stand by and defend behaviour uh, that I think is wrong. And in particular with Dominic Cummings, I'll be honest with you, a lot of this came down to, to my personal circumstances as well. My, my wife's a police officer, uh, and I don't think I've explained this much before, but what was going through my head was Crystal's going to pull someone over in their car and he's going to say I was testing my eyesight. And I thought, how can I say to Crystal, you know, someone's going to start saying that to you when you pull them over with your blue lights on. Uh, and say it was right for the Prime Minister's chief advisor, but it's not right for someone driving through Elgin. So it's strange maybe that a big decision in my political life came down to uh, my wife's occupation. But yeah, so that that's the, the decision I took with Dominic Cummings, and also that I couldn't come out and defend it. You know, as a government minister, whether you're involved or not, you're doing the media and you have to defend the government line. So I think, uh, probably to answer your question, Gina, I would have found it very difficult uh, to do that um, in other scenarios as well. But I was gone by then um, and really I can say whatever I want. Thankfully, thankfully you were gone. You didn't have to make that decision. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't have been allowed to do this podcast probably because you've got to go through all these internal um, processes when you're a government minister. Again, on, on Nicola Sturgeon's, you know, issues with the Salmond Inquiry, etc. One of the aspects of your party's approach to, you know, the votes of no confidence, a lot of criticism has been has been put your way for the decision to, um, you know, put forward the idea of a vote of no confidence, essentially table it without tabling it before, you know, 
the First Minister even sat down and gave evidence. Do you accept that that was a tactical error or do you think it was the right thing to do? I accept that people disagree with it, but I think it was the right thing to do because I didn't take that decision based on no evidence at all. I based it on the First Minister's own evidence. Her written submission confirmed that what she had previously said to Parliament was not correct. Uh, I based it on what a number of then independent witnesses had said and, and their evidence corroborated what others uh, had said. And of course, the decision with the vote of no confidence in John Swinney actually forced the Scottish Government, after months of refusing to follow the will of Parliament, um, two votes held in November to release legal advice. Actually, it was only when Scottish Conservatives brought forward that vote of no confidence in John Swinney did we get some of the legal advice, which was absolutely damning. It confirmed that that case that the Scottish Government pursued for months was doomed to failure and how the cost to the taxpayer racked up and racked up. So, um, yeah, I, I accept people will criticise, but I still think it was the right thing to do. Do you think, though, I mean... This is just from a, from an impartial observer point of view. Um, you know, calling for someone's resignation before they even get to put their side of the story looks as if it provided ammunition to the first minister's then response when the when the inquiry you know released its or leaked its findings that it was a partisan you know exercise. That that surely can't have helped you. It, you know, it, it turned the Greens against you. It even turned Scottish Labour against the idea. That's that's a big error to make when you could have seen the back of Nicola Sturgeon. Well, I think we've seen whatever happened. It was always going to be framed as a partisan committee, despite the fact that the makeup of the committee, the membership of the committee, the SNP convenership of the committee, and the remit of the committee was all written by the First Minister and her government. So she had previously said she would respect the outcome of both the Hamilton inquiry and the cross-party committee. It, when the committee found she had misled them, she, she decided then not to accept those findings. So why did they then sit in their hands and abstain when it came to the vote of no confidence? I think some people also find that confusing. Douglas, can I ask you, do you think Alex Salmond is a, a fit person to be an MSP? No, I don't. Uh, and I've said that when he announced that he was coming or going to uh, attempt to make a comeback into Scottish politics and lead the Alpa party and stand as the number one candidate in the North East. I said he wasn't a, a fit person to, to seek elected office. And I know his defence is he's been cleared by uh, court cases and juries, etc, etc. But he has also himself accepted that his behaviour while First Minister with women who worked extremely closely with him, fell below the required standard. So, you know, I put to one side what happened in court and the outcome, and I think even his own words, that his uh, behaviour was unacceptable. But, um, you know, in politics, it, things happen that you have to, to respond to, and I think to, to ignore that threat, it would be letting down the people of Scotland. OK, Douglas, we know that you don't want a second independence referendum, but what what do you want? I mean, what policy offer will people get from the Scottish Conservatives? Yeah, a lot. And I know people say, oh, the Scottish Tories, all they ever speak about is no to, to India F2. And that's true because, you know, we are the strongest party against another independence referendum. But I don't want that independence referendum so we can speak about our proposals for job security councils. It's a Swedish model that's been around for uh, since the 1970s that helps people back into work in their area uh, of um, 
uh, expertise if they lose their job. It's about the, the grants I've announced for Retrain to Rebuild, £500 for every adult in Scotland to get the training they need to either stay in their job or to get back into employment. It's about recruiting 3,000 additional teachers across Scotland over the next parliament. It's about having a national tutoring scheme. So not just those who can afford for their kids to get extra tutoring, but everyone who's got potential gets extra tutoring. It's a catch-up premium for all pupils across Scotland who have been out in the classroom for much of the last year. It's about protecting people's jobs by ensuring that businesses are supported. I've said for some time uh, we needed to have a, a coronavirus business advisory council. So businesses were involved in decisions taken about restrictions being introduced or eased and about the grant system. Why do we still have 44 different schemes in Scotland for businesses to get support from and some of them are oversubscribed and some of them haven't given out any money at all? That money is there to help these businesses but we've got such a complex system um, they're not getting that support. Yesterday I was announcing, sorry, um, I know they were... <laughs> The day before we recorded this podcast, I was announcing our plans for a local policing bill that's trying to get more officers on the streets of local communities and local areas having more say in the number of officers they have rather than centralised decisions. Earlier this morning, on the day that we're uh, recording this podcast, I was speaking about a guarantee for NHS funding, a double lock to say over the next parliament, Scottish Conservatives would legislate that funding for the NHS would either increase by the Barnett formula uh, increase or by 2% above inflation, inflation, whichever is higher, which our figures suggest would give us an extra £2 billion for the NHS over the next parliament. So those are just some of the issues that I'm campaigning on, but none of that can happen if we can't focus on our recovery, can't focus on rebuilding Scotland because we have to worry about another independence referendum. Can I um, ask you about your policies, Douglas? Some of those sounded, you know, very interesting. I mean, your NHS spending in particular. Aren't you worried, though, that none of these, no matter how good they are, are just not going to get heard because you're concentrating so much on, on the constitutional question? And isn't that... Um, what Anas Sarwar and Willie Rennie were, were trying to do during the, the television debate um, last week and, you know, trying to get beyond that, in a sense, um, and, and say this is this is what the offer is in order to recover. I mean, your offer is there too, but nobody's going to hear that, are they? But I'm not sure people are going to hear what Scottish Labour or the Scottish Liberal Democrats are offering because, you know, we're having this argument about another independence referendum. We're having this discussion. You know, we're being asked to respond to Nicola Sturgeon saying that the referendum could be held during the recovery phase. We're being asked to respond to Alex Salmond saying there will be a supermajority for independence. We're being asked to respond to everything in the, the round of the, the question about Scotland's place in the United Kingdom. And the point I go to about last week's debate, and I've finally been able to get my, my dates right, but last week's debate was every single question, or almost, came from an audience member about the NHS, and they were worried about how we rebuild our NHS if there's going to be another independence referendum. That wasn't me saying that. I was agreeing with the person asking the question. Likewise, the person worried about the economy. How can we rebuild our economy? I think was pretty much the question if we're worried about another independence referendum. So it's not just politicians that are focused on that. That's where the public are. They're really worried about how we can recover if we have another referendum. Can I put it to you again, Douglas, that the Scottish Conservatives cannot credibly criticise the SNP, SNP for pushing ahead with constitutional plans when Brexit went ahead 
in the very middle of um, the pandemic when the UK government had the opportunity to extend the transition period and specifically chose not to do so? Well, we were obviously well through uh, the negotiations for Brexit by the time that um, the pandemic uh, really started. And many people, whether they supported Brexit or even those who voted to remain, just wanted it finished with. It was a decision that the United Kingdom took in 2016, and it was only on Christmas Eve of 2020 it was the deal finally agreed. So many people just wanted that uh, finalised to allow us to move on. What the SNP are proposing is to have another debate, another campaign, a divisive um, referendum that has in the past it split families, split workplaces, split communities. And then after that referendum, if they get their way, to then start about um, removing Scotland from the United Kingdom. And I don't think anyone wants that when we should be focused on our recovery. But is it not, is it not essentially the same argument, though? Because, because ju- just, um, just to put it to you this way, in, you know, Brexit, you say the negotiations were well on. That might have been true, but at the end of the day, they still only took up until, you know, 24th of December 2020, you know, six days um, before that cliff edge of uncertainty. You know, that caused significant uncertainty for businesses, for exporters, um, for, you know, everyday people about freedom of movement and issues like that. Slap bang in the middle of the second wave taking off. Is it not the same argument that the SNP might want to get the debate done and get it over and done with in time for the recovery to to come forward and start? No, I don't think so. And the reason I think it's different is obviously they, they want to have a campaign and a referendum in that time and then to start what will be, what would be if they got their way, at the most difficult negotiations that anyone can imagine. Look at how complex it was to come out of a, a union that we'd only been part of for 40 years. Uh, and apart from between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, there's no land border compared to what is being proposed uh, with Scottish independence. If the people uh, of Scotland were to have to go through that referendum all over again and were to vote for it, I mean, that would just be, you know, by impartial figures, you know, massively more complex and costly to Scotland than Brexit. Are you failing to put forward a positive case for the union, though, by focusing on the negatives of the potential campaign, you know, vote and then independence negotiations? No, I, I think I've, I certainly, again, in the debate last week, I tried to put across the positive case because I, I was asked, you know, what is the positive case for the union? And, and it's in the, the protection that we've seen through furlough, self-employed income support, 90,000 businesses in Scotland benefiting from grants, um, you know, a VAT reduction for hospitality. That's as helpful to businesses in Shetland as it is to those in South Cornwall. Um, and of course, the vaccine. I, I think the vaccine has been a game changer. Um, and while some people thought the, the shift from... Uh, you know, support in polls for independence to now coming more 50-50 or in favour of remaining in, in the United Kingdom was down to all the controversy around Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. I think it's because people could see the protections they were getting in their arm was as a result of being part of the United Kingdom. It was the Scottish NHS, British Armed Forces based here in Scotland and Scottish volunteers. I was one of them helping out in Mossad Park. Um, but people could see that, that we could only do that because we're part of the United Kingdom. And I think there's no more positive message I could deliver uh, about how important the union is to Scotland than it being our way out of this pandemic. Just staying with the debate, Douglas, um, 
and there's obviously a few more of them to come. How annoyed were you with an ass server telling you to grow up? <laughs> well, particularly annoyed because I'm two months older than him. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, um, but no, that, that I mean, that's just a, a silly point. I'll be honest, look, um, we've touched, or, or I maybe introduced this, I'm a football referee um, in, in my spare time, and I always review my performances. You know, I'll think, did I get that throw-in right? Did I get that offside right? And I've watched and I will continue to watch back that last debate. And there's things I was happy with and things I wasn't happy with. And I think anyone who believes they've had a faultless performance in a debate and they can't do any better uh, is fooling themselves. So um, I take on board the criticisms that many people have written up about me. Um, I don't put too much emphasis on people who said I was great because they just want to say that to make me happy. But as you say, I think we've got at least another four to go. And I'm looking forward to them, but I know there's things I can do better in this, the next four debates than I did in the first one. But um, it was my first ever live TV leaders debate, and uh, I never expected to come through unscathed. And I also never expected to get glowing right ups from people who had probably already formed their opinions about how I was going to perform anyway. But there's no doubt I can do better, uh, and that's that's what I'm here to do. So let's into your um, preparation secrets for that. Who plays Nicola Sturgeon in your team? <laughs> There's a number of them. Um, so they take turns. And uh, I've got to say, I actually preferred doing it live than the prep session. Um, I just find it so false. You know, we're, we're doing it on Zoom a lot of the time just now. Um, and it's it's really difficult to to get into the, that cut and thrust of the debate. Is it, is it Murdo who's on, who's uh, <laughs> takes Nicola Sturgeon's uh, No, uh, uh, it wasn't Murdo. I don't want to reveal too many secrets about who was involved, but it, it's a very good question for all the leaders, see if they actually reveal who's involved in their prep team. <laughs> Fantastic. I wanted to ask you just one final question. Obviously, we go to the polls in a month and four, five days uh, at the time of recording. We've had several decades, I think probably 40, 50 years, of either Labour or SNP or Labour Lib Dem rule in Scotland um, or you know, majority sending them the MPs to, to Westminster. So it's a broader question. Um, why do you think Scotland has rejected Toryism for as long as it has? And how do you see your party getting to a place where it can be a legitimate candidate to, you know, for you to be First Minister or for one of your successors to be First Minister? Well, first of all, I understand how you, you paint that question uh, about the Scottish Conservatives, but I would also highlight that Scottish Labour have lost votes and lost seats at every single election since devolution in 1999. You've got to look at the Scottish Liberal Democrats, who for the first two sessions of Parliament formed part of a coalition government, who are now down to just a handful uh, of MSPs. And you've got to look at the Scottish Conservatives, who for the first couple of uh, elections had 15, 16 MSPs, uh, now have 31, uh, or uh, had 31 at the 2016 election. Uh, and were returned as the main opposition party. So I, I think there, there has been movement in Scottish politics. I'd love it to move even quicker. Uh, uh, but I do think, um, you know, people now view us as the strongest party uh, to stand up for Scotland's place in the United Kingdom, both in 
Holyrood representation, in Westminster representation and in council chambers up and down the country. We are the second largest party uh, to the SNP. So we are that natural challenger and alternative to the SNP. And, and Gina gave me an opportunity earlier to just explain some of the policies I'd take forward. And I think I'd hope people listening to those policies, and it's certainly something I set out to do when I became leader last August, was to come forward with policies that are important to me are important to my family, how I think they can improve the chances of, of my wee boy or and his brother or sister, whatever we're going to have now in just over uh, three months' time, to, to look forward to that generation and say, you know, decisions we took in 2021 have actually improved your chances uh, in a few years' time at school, whether you go to college, university or straight into work or an apprenticeship. Um, and I think the more we can focus on that, uh, the better we can do. Uh, I'll be doing some work zooming around the country during the day and then waiting for, for the votes to start being counted the next day and, and wondering how it will be written up uh, by the Scotsman and others. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on the Steamy, Douglas. Really appreciate it and best of luck with the campaign and uh, hope it goes well. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you. The Steamy, the laudable production for the Scotsman.